hey marketers, put your listening ears on for this episode of Marketgy, the science of marketing strategy. We share the stories and strategies of marketing and revenue experts focusing on building value for the business and customer, where the blend of science, creativity, and strategy meet to make Marketgy. Hello, this is Leanne with Marketgy, and I'm joined today by Chris Black. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what it is you do. Hi, Leanne. Thanks for having me on today. I'm really excited to be here. So I'm Chris Black, but all of my focus is on early stage tech startups, generally B2B SaaS companies. I do advisory work for, say, pre-seed companies. Uh, I do some consulting for Series A companies. And then my main focus, of course, is in those Series B companies that finally need full-time marketing support. I'm often joking that I'm one of the first business adults in the room working with scientists and engineers to really bring their dreams to market. Awesome. Yeah, I think that that is definitely something that we had in common was being that, that voice in the room that maybe is a little bit more has a wider range of experiences to bring from outside that that founders or scientists own world where they're really, really good at that thing that they do that is very technical and very passionate about them, but they aren't necessarily well-versed in marketing or business. And so what are, you know, that can be its own challenge, especially when they're doing something new and exciting. We talked before, we talked about, you know, being that first voice, that first solo marketer. And so what are some ways that you bring marketing strategy to these organizations or advise them so that they can grow and accomplish what it is they're they're setting out to do? Well, usually the first thing I try to work on with folks is what is the business problem? What is the problem that they're solving? They're coming in with really cool tech gadgets of some sort. And it's anywhere from, from various bits of hardware, lower power processing, supercomputing through now, it's, it's so much more software-based. And they've got a really good idea. What was the problem they were trying to solve? Who were they trying to solve it for? And helping them articulate that, helping them understand the voice of their customer. Because most of the time at this stage, you know, they're very focused on themselves, their technology, speeds and feeds, all of the cool stuff that it'll do, I try and help pivot them to thinking about what is it that the customer needs? What is the thing that is is just killing their customer today? And their customers may not even know it. And that's where you get into this category creation. Their customer may be having a problem, a pain. They don't know that it can be solved. So for example, today, I've been with Origin AI for a few months now. And that was one of the first things I did was coming in understanding that voice of the customer. What is that pain point? And then, you know, what's the ideal customer profile? What are the personas? Who's in the room to buy those products? What are their stories? And as soon as we can understand their stories, then we can start to build content around that and the rest of that marketing program. Yeah, it's the like, just the to put it bluntly, it's looking at the founder and being like, okay, so how's that going to make you money? There's a lot of that, yes. <laughs> you know, and... Once again, these founders are very smart, very savvy, very like just, I'm speaking very highly of them. It's just not in their tool set because they're so good at the thing that they do. But you're right. Like, you know, asking them like, okay, so who does this help and how does it help them? And when we've talked about like category design and, you know, like proof of concept type of marketing, what are some some ways that you approach that? 
the proof of concept on the marketing side, not the product side. Yes. Because I, I play on both sides sometimes. Yeah. From the <laughs> well, when you're at a small company and you're you know, in the, the teens for number of employees, then you, you wear a lot of hats. But from a proof of concept, from a marketing perspective, I actually like events for this. Not that there's always a lot of money for that, but I like to test messaging, even if it's attending the event, trying to learn more about that space, meet some people, hear what the conversations are and start to join those conversations. But those in-person discussions, I can start to test some of that messaging before it even goes onto paper. Other easy, quick wins are through digital marketing. I'm not a big fan of Google advertising that can suck a lot of money really quickly, but you can do some some quick LinkedIn advertising, see what's resonating, A-B testing, emails, A-B testing emails. But my first step is almost always going to an event and just walking the show floor and talking to people and seeing when eyes glaze over versus when people start to get really engaged and, and talk. And then I know I'm onto something with that messaging. And, you know, this is a little controversial, but eavesdropping. I went to a conference in San Francisco a number of years ago, and I sat down for a meal by myself. And the people on either side of me, one of the gentlemen, uh, like, you know, I, I said hi real quick, but he's like, oh, you're brave for sitting by myself. And I, and I thought to myself, I'm like, no, I'm just here to take notes on the, you know, the shit that you guys talk about. And, and I mean that because when you hear someone's like objections or the things that they like call out or find value to organically talk about, it tells you a lot without, you know, it being uh, very forced. So number five on my survey, did you like this word? You know, it, it kind of, it's a little sneaky. Oh, I also find if you stay during the sessions and you stay through the Q&A, listen to the questions that people ask, and I'll actually go up to the speaker and not ask questions because I'm curious what questions are being asked and the ones that are not in front of everybody. So the ones in front of everyone, that, that's usually to make people feel really smart. But the ones that are actually to the speaker afterwards, once the crowds start to dissipate, you get some really interesting questions and you can hear some really cool answers too. Yeah, I definitely agree because those are the ones that internalized the message of the speaker and had a specific case or scenario that they wanted application for or needed insight or clarity. Or they were just saying, you know, networking. There's that. But usually the questions are really rich kinds of questions. And then I, I can start to test my own kind of thinking and understanding of, of whatever that topic was about. Awesome. I, I feel like I took us on a tangent about this eavesdropping part. But if we were going to kind of like retreat a little and look at a general way of defining this, would you say that creating a value system of some sort or what that might look like might be involved when you start out doing marketing for a organization that's trying to accomplish category design? Well, absolutely. I think values are important across the board, but especially in small companies. So it's always part of my interview questioning is trying to understand the values of the company and if they're in line to my own values, because we should always bring our full selves to work. But at a startup, when you've got handfuls of employees that's even more important. There's there's no real room for someone that isn't fully engaged, right? There's there's too much at stake. You're moving too fast. So bringing that full self to work, and that means that your value systems have to be aligned and the value systems of the organization with the value systems of the people that they're trying to, to reach out to. So I, I ask a lot of questions about that before I even join a company at any stage through consulting or, or full-time engagement is to make sure that all of those are really well aligned. 
if you get an executive that comes in that is not aligned with that, that can literally destroy a small startup that's trying to move quickly. So yes, I'm, I always really try and, and approach things from a values-based perspective. And when we think about the future, I think we're seeing a lot of values assessments being made, especially from the marketing perspective. So when we think about mental well-being, mental health, especially post-COVID, as we think about the environment and the impact that we all have and that our products have, I think that's really going to continue to escalate over, over these next few years. And I'm really glad that I personally am very intentional about it. And I try and make sure my organizations are really intentional about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that giving space for that intentionality helps to define what the brand really is, right? Because we have what the brand guidelines say, and you know, the font and the color and the tone of voice, we've got that. But then there's this like lived brand experience. And to me, that's, that's like almost what someone would call a robot or like an, you know, synthetic person, because it's more complicated. It's, it's made up of these micro decisions and actions and experiences. And so when there's that space given to the value system, uh, you see it play out with strategic partnerships or donations given in the brand's name or, you know, different places where these things interact and intertwine that make up this larger experience of the brand. And these last couple of years have been interesting when we look at advertising. We've seen a lot of potential missteps or perceived missteps from brands that I don't always agree were missteps. Whether it's values about gender identity, values around the environment. I saw one in, in one of my Slack channels today about the Apple environment campaign, the five-minute commercial that they had, and how much backlash there was with that. When Apple was really trying to do something really good and describe something really good, but because it doesn't appear to align with what we know about that brand, I think it ended up falling flat. You know, Pepsi's had that. We've seen the beer wars with how how their brands are really exposing themselves and trying to be more inclusive. There's some backlash, but then there's others that are really you know, proactively encouraging these brands to, to be more open. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Absolutely. And I think that like that, that comes to bringing your whole self to work. You know, you mentioned that you're very selective about who you work with. And when you bring your whole self to work and you support or, you know, whatever value system that you have as an individual, you bring it and it, it does shade the choices that you make as an operator within an organization. And so, you know, making sure there's that alignment and that comfort level is very, very important. And so kind of it also bringing it back to like our theme of like category design, when you have people within the organization, there's five people, it's like a microscope. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the wrong leader can really, really negatively impact it. And, and, you know, there's that saying that people quit their manager. And so, you know, I, I definitely think that you, you are right on there is that if there's a CEO at the top, and all of a sudden, a bunch of people quit, you know, maybe there's a self-reflection that should occur. Yeah. Of course. Well, and I, I think we see a lot of interesting things happening in the workplaces today, post-COVID, right? A lot of us were able to work from home. There's a lot of us that don't want to go back to the office. And when we think about diversion and, and inclusivity, gosh, you know, working from home allows a lot of people to be able to participate in a workplace in a way that, that not everyone has been able to previously. So there's a lot of struggle here. 
as to what does the future of work look like and how do we want to engage within our, our spaces and within our businesses. So I, I think there's a lot of neat stuff going on here, but you're right. I, I think there's a lot of lip service that's paid at a lot of companies and not necessarily as much action as we see some of the rollbacks on, on some of these DEI efforts. I worry that a lot of the companies will stop talking about this, especially given some of the backlash from some of these ad campaigns. I hope that these companies lean into it. I hope our leaders lean into this because we all know that these DEI kind of programs absolutely make businesses better. When we bring our full self to work, I think there's more joy in the workplace and there's a lot of better ideas that come out of it. And of course, we all make money as a result. Although, you know, it's also a more fun place to work. Absolutely. And and I love that everything you're saying, I can think of at least three different research things that have occurred from high quality institutions that support everything you just said. Like, it's not just opinion, it's fact. Absolutely. And Lean In does a great job. They have their annual report and that, that's specifically for women. And, but their annual report, I use that every year with my organizations to benchmark ourselves and see how we are doing. I try and expand that. I mean, obviously I care as, as a woman in the workplace, but the, the numbers for women of color are horrible. And then we have all of the other kind of gender discussions happening today that I, I think it's it's all pertinent. So I try and make sure that I bring that to my workplace and have a discussion annually based on that particular report, which I just think is stellar. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've, I've seen a number of different types of leaders and, you know, I, I can say that there is no such thing as narrowly defined what a leader should be. And that that's, that's a relic that should stay in the past is that you can only be a leader if you look like Don Draper. Yeah, probably not, actually. Well, and if we can't bring our full selves to work, I think, you know, on the topic of category creation in these small companies, I don't think we can be nearly as successful. There is nothing better in my mind in having a whole organization working towards the same thing, having that same goal and everyone being all in because you, you win or lose together and it is, it is joyous. Either direction, as long as you know you've given it your all. And if there are voices in the organization that aren't heard, that seeps out externally, your customers, your prospects know that, but internally, you're just not going to be able to, to reach as far if everyone is not included in that effort. Absolutely. And, and I want to call this out is that the type of customers we have today are a lot more informed and intelligent than the customers that, you know, in the in the customer business relationship that, that existed 10, 15, 20 or more years ago. So the table stakes is is a lot higher and the transparency and people's ability to see through your bullshit is just it, it it's higher. Like like just like in your Apple one, they're gonna be like, oh really? Tell us about the lithium. Where are you getting lithium from? You know, like it's, it's, there's in this era of globalization and access to information. Yes, we are overwhelmed with too much information and sometimes misinformation, but there is information at our fingertips. And if you aren't aligned externally and internally with what your messages actually are and what your, you know, actions are to support it, it'll all fall, fall flat. Well, I, th I think it bleeds into our marketing as well. So if we allow our full selves to come to work, if we are brave enough to bring our full self to work and we are brave enough to reach out and understand everyone else's full self and allow the, all of these voices, I think that comes out in our outbound communications as well. If we understand ourselves and all of the diversity within our own organizations, 
I think we're more open to hearing the stories of our customers and of our prospects. And that allows a much deeper connection too. And I, I think that joy that I feel when I work with these kinds of teams, I think that absolutely spills into the relationships we have with our customers, with our partners, and it, it just spreads and, and it's cool. I love that. Yeah. And just to kind of follow up on that is that it makes us want, like you said, embrace their stories, but hear and feel their stories. And when we can humanize our brand into something that's relevant for those people and actually kill a pain that they really have instead of one that, you know, we think they have. Yeah, it, it is a really cool thing to, to help prove the concept of what it is we're trying to do. Well, we, we've talked some about kind of that customer journey. And one of the things that I, I think about, I, I studied the hero's journey in college. Our customers want to be their own heroes, right? There's at least in a B2B kind of space. Maybe, maybe it's different in B2C, but in B2B, I see a lot of companies want to be the hero. We're going to come in. We're going to rescue you. But if we listen to our customers, we, we know that our customers want to be their own heroes. They need people to help them, right? And our brands will help. It's through you know whatever products that we give. The more that we hear those stories, the more that we understand those stories and can relate to them, I think the better that dynamic is. And we make the stories about our customers. We make sure that they're heard. We make sure that they are made the heroes within their own organizations or with their own customer base. And that's something I don't think we can do if we don't kind of stop and listen and pay attention. Absolutely. I was writing notes. I'm like, oh, yes. You know, this reminds me of something I hear about all the time. You know, it's it's very popular on social media. A common reply is about like main character energy. And so that that brings up a couple things. One, no one's Ursula in their own story. Your customer might feel like they have room for improvement. But if you sit there and you tell them that they're the bad guy, you're you're in the wrong conversation. Our customers are the main characters and what they're looking for. And I'm going to put this into video game language because it feels good. If our customers are Zelda, we're just trying to give them swords and give them some coins they can collect along the way so that they can finish their mission, right? Like we don't want to be the thing that they're trying to like, the maze they're trying to figure out. You don't want to be the labyrinth, but you want to be the thing that helps them get to their goal. And that's how you can make that partnership and not try to be, you can't have like five main characters of equal weight. I actually think of it more in terms of Mario. I like to think of it as leveling up. I love that you went with a Nintendo term because I absolutely think of it as leveling up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I do, I am surrounded by video games in my, not my personal use, but like my family loves it. But, you know, there's, there's these ideas of like side quests and all that. And that's a whole tangent we will stay away from today. (laughs) <laughs> we will not go on a side quest with this conversation. But, you know, when we're we're kind of thinking about this fledgling organization, they want their people to bring their full self and they want that to help create the category and, and you know, establish knowledge and learnings and ramp them up so they can get their own revenue and a larger runway. You know, the external team, like member of the customer, making them the main character, and then the work that we do internally, you know, how do you think about it from like a GTM perspective? Like, how do you kind of frame that up? Yeah, there's so, so many places we can go with that one. As you know, I'm a big fan of the, the GTM motion. I've seen enough companies that point fingers at each other when things don't work, but we really, we want to surround the accounts 
We want to have our own teams all operating at the same level. It used to be marketing, you know, points to finger at sales, sales points at product, product points back, you know, maybe at customer success. And there's a lot of finger pointing and nothing gets done. We see an evolution where I like to call it marketing. I, I stole that from Terminus where sales and marketing was joined. But what we see today now is, is more of this GTM motion where it's, it's all of the members of the team in the room together trying to solve customer problems. If there is an issue, if things are not selling, it's not about pointing fingers. It's about looking at data, working together, trying to make sure that, that we're, we're doing the right approach and still bringing our full selves in. And there's still a lot of joy in that and in, in that problem solving together. But it might be messaging, it might be product, it might be sales, but it's it's all of us together because all of us need revenue for the company, right? It's 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 about the company's goals and none of us are getting bonuses if there's no revenue. In fact, we're, we're going to lose our jobs, all of us collectively. So we're all incented. We all, you know, aside from the, the feel good of we want to help our customers because we're a values-based organization, all of us working at the same level, trying to, to make sure we're reaching the right people at the right time with the right product line. And it's, it's a great team effort. Absolutely. So is there ever a time where, or like, is there an organization that these types of ideas wouldn't be a good fit for? Well, the smaller the company, you might find your GTM team is smaller because there's fewer hats to, like there's fewer people in the seats. And so, for example, at my current organization, I'm, I'm managing sort of a RevOps kind of role. We don't necessarily have much in the way of customer success yet because we're too small. We have customers, but you know, there's not a dedicated customer success. We're all responsible for that. So we end up wearing a lot of hats and you just have fewer people in the room as a result. But I think you always want a GTM kind of motion to work with how to get your message out and how to keep those customers happy once you have them. Absolutely. This reminds me of you know the concept of builders and scalers and puppeteers is what I guess you could think of them. And each of those is different for the different stages and needs of the different organization. And so when you're thinking about like value systems of the individual within that small fledgling organization, you're also thinking about their POV. And it's very hard for someone that is used to being a puppeteer to come into a five-person organization and put on the gloves and be the person that is okay, well, today I created our Google Ads account. Today, I decided that we should go with this email platform instead of this one. Or, you know, today I, and, and they thought, you know, this is the infrastructure we need to start building so that we can get to the scaling stage, or we can do this. And, and there's, a, there's different POVs at that early category creation well, that's a that's a good point. There's there's two things I hear there. One is every person, no matter how strategic or how senior, are rolling up their their sleeves, and there's a fine line. Like I I don't know how CEOs draw that line where they have to roll up their sleeves, but then they have to drive the organization and, and do strategy, and that changes over the life cycle of that organization as it moves forward. And I even struggle with that. You know, how much strategy do I do, and how much am I in HubSpot doing the goo? Because I have to do both, and balancing that for the best for the organization can be a challenge and salespeople as well. Like how much do you delve into the strategy, building your account plans, building the systems that are needed, the analytics versus getting out and dialing, you know, you're your own SDR, you're your own land and expand, like you're your own customer success and balancing all of that is truly challenging. 
you think about POV of an organization, a seed stage company is going after investment versus when you're in the series A, you're building the product, whole different point of view of, of what you need to accomplish as an organization. That B stage, now you're building the business, you're building the infrastructure, you're trying to ramp revenue, you're in that growth phase. And so you're right that the goals of each organization change dramatically and how much your, your people can do as you scale that changes and you've got to be so nimble. And you know, Silicon Valley likes to talk about failing fast. There's absolutely failing fast and you can't be afraid to just make decisions and go and test. And if it doesn't work, you know, go, oops, that was a good try. How are we going to do it differently now? Because you don't have a lot of time in these early stage. If you're a category creator, if you've got that great idea, another company does too. So how you're duking it out in that time is also, that's a narrow window and it's, it's fun. Like it's exhilarating to be in there, but oh my goodness, balancing all of those needs is really hard. Yeah. And, and you don't know what you don't know. And so, you know, having a team that knows that those are your needs, very, very important. <laughs> I feel bad. I've, I've seen a lot of Oracle executives come into the kind of companies that I like to specialize in. It's really hard. They're like, okay, where's my ops person? Where's my finance person? Where's my HR person? Where's where's this? Where's that? And it's like, oh, dude, that's all you and me. Like, it's two of us. We're gonna go. <laughs> well, yeah. Welcome to customer success. What what do you want to do about it? And and it just be a coffee conversation instead of a ten people panel. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a wild ride either way, right? It's it's a wild ride, and you know, there's, there's pros and cons to each kind of situation, but yeah, you got to be able to, to have different customer sets at different stages. And also like the Oracle person, they're not going to know what an investor wants to hear unless they've been an investor themselves because they just haven't seen it work or not work. Yeah. And I can't be at an HP or an Oracle. I, I would fail miserably unless there's some little skunk works group that operates like a, like a startup. I, I just wouldn't be able to. I, I love the building aspect of it. I love the nimbleness and the quickness, the lack of, of layers. And, you know, I have direct access to my CEOs at every company. Uh, usually I work for the CEO. And so you develop th these kinds of really interesting relationships that I would really miss at these larger organizations. Yeah, I relate to that very much. I said yesterday, so when I'm like, man, I am not the right fit for a thousand person organization. Can't even imagine. I think a 500 person organization is huge. <laughs> And, and that's not to say that, you know, that's not to diminish on skills or abilities or personalities or bringing your whole self. It's that bias towards action can get easily frustrated by too many layers of dilution or approvals, or it's a lot easier to flip a U-turn in, you know, a two-seater coupe than it is the Titanic, you know? Like it's just easier to get five people aligned and moving quickly than it is a thousand. Because who's to say you can ever get a thousand people completely aligned? That is some internal marketing work. That is change management. That is a whole new ballgame. So there's there's pros to each and cons to each is all I'm saying. Absolutely. And and I, I will just tell anybody who's interested in startups, it's, it's one of the most common questions I get. It is not for the faint of heart. Right. I, there's a lot of job losses. There's a lot of companies that close. There's a lot of companies that get acquired and then you've got your job loss. There's the fast decision making. There, your mistakes can cost a lot. So it, it is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. And, and that being said is that 
before we press record, we talked about when, what type of organization can do a category design. And there wasn't, from my perspective, there wasn't just, you know, only a startup with this great idea can do it, or only an Apple can do it. It's whoever has money and interest in doing it can do it. Yeah. And category creation is interesting because you got to figure out, is there pain? You know, why, why is it a new thing? Is it because the pain isn't bad enough and people aren't going to pay for it? Or is it that they don't know that they have the pain and now you have to pay to educate? So that's a lot of money. I've been at a lot of first to markets that end up not being as successful because the second to market gets to ride the coattails of the education, but it does take a lot of money. And in this environment right now, there's not a lot of capital going around. And so you've got to do a lot more with less. You're working out of the garages more often in order to prove yourself, to prove like in the dot-com era, you know, when we, when the dot-com industry collapsed, right? Being able to prove yourself and, and that's just kind of the phase we're in. It's great because you can get great talent right now, but that capital is not flowing like it was two years ago. And but looking forward five years from now, the people that are successful today with less capital and are more efficient with their growth are going to have more sustainable progress in feast and famine, right? Like you can't, you can't just start up in a feast season and be like, oh, we're going to, you know, do everything. And I think that starting off in that famine season makes it a little bit more resilient because it does take more to survive, but it also teaches them lessons about the cost of money. Well, I think it's also about focus. So when you're in a, in a feast situation, you can do this, you can do that, you can be in multiple industries, you can scale so fast, and you spend a lot of money way faster than I think most people realize, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur or first-time CEO, that money can disappear quickly. But in this kind of environment, you know you have to focus in on this one thing. What is the thing that I'm going to solve today? Make that successful, get the revenue coming in, and then you can expand from there. And, and so it is a much more sustainable, to your point, a more sustainable way to, to move forward. Yeah. I call it the doing less with more instead of more with less. You want to be very focused. And so, you know, we've we've kind of talked about like, you know, where where this would be the wrong fit. And it's, there's definitely seasons that are more amiable to it and seasons that aren't. But you know, looking forward towards as we go through this kind of constriction, and then, you know, eventually we won't be in such a one because cycles, not that I'm psychic, but because cycles and optimism. But where do you think the future of marketing is going? And also to follow that up, where do you think it should go if it's not necessarily the same? Well, I'm going to sound like everybody else and talk about AI, which sounds rather droll now because everyone's talking about AI. But I do think that ChatGPT and some of these other generative AI technologies, which by the way, have been around for years now, um, but are finally popularized, they're democratized, we all have access to it. I think we're going to see that expand, not from necessarily just a content creation, which I mean, content creation is fun. We see it with images, we see it with text, we see it with voice. There's a lot of ramifications about that. Everyone else is talking about that. And so I won't delve into that, but I do think that AI can be great when it comes to helping us practice. Like I could practice my interview questions here before we came on because of generative AI, but I can also get to ICPs faster. I can get to persona creation faster. So using AI to really accelerate the amount of work we do is great as a solo marketer that I have like a, a little helper on the side. 
I'm using it to get to analytics. We see ChatSpot and, and I can't remember what Salesforce is, is called, but all of these tools, you're going to use AI to help us find patterns. I think that's going to be fantastic. And that's all short term. That's, that's right around the corner. I don't think it's quite there yet, at least with some of these analytics, but it's going to be fantastic. It's, it's just going to allow us to, to look at patterns in a much better way and hone in our strategies in a better way, aside from all the content stuff that they're talking about now. I think, uh, like I talked earlier, brand image, I think we're going to be more intentional. You know, it, it, we've transitioned over 20 years that people tell us what our brands are, um, and we have a conversation about that brand. But I think in a post-COVID era, we're going to be much more intentional about humanity, you know, whether it's uh, mental illness, mental health in general. It's going to be about sustainability, and we're, we're seeing a lot of ads already starting on that. I think that's only going to continue as we see all of these macro conditions are affecting us and, and people are going to demand that of our brain of our brands. As far as what they shouldn't be, I don't know, we shouldn't be jerks. <laughs> you know, I, I whether it's ourselves, our brands, you know, authenticity, of course, you know, the kids all talk about authenticity and I love that. Being bringing our full selves to work, bringing our full brands to market. I think that's all going to continue and that's going to be great. So we, we should continue that, but you know, let's, let's not be jerks about it. Let's realize there's a bigger world around us. I, I think diversity is going to be expanded to include neurodiversion, neurodiversity. I think that conversation is great. And I think we're going to see workplaces change, not just marketing, but workplaces in general, be more accommodating and more accepting people. So it's not just about male, female, gay, straight, all of this communication, all this conversation going on around us, that's all going to seep into everything we do, including our marketing. And I am so excited about all of that. I agree. I think that there's a lot of just really great skills and talents and perspectives in value that, you know, everyone has to offer. And I think that, you know, people deserve to not be stigmatized over these uncontrollable things right? Like it wasn't a choice. Like, you know, and, and I think that, you know, if we choose to be jerks, we should be punished, you know, but I think that, you know, when it's, it's not a matter of choice, what we get from including people as they really are is the benefit of knowing them, you know, and, and that might make me sound like, you know, a very California, like tree hugger type of person, but I am. And I love that about myself is that I love people. And, you know, that's what gets me to be a great marketer is looking at the humanity of it instead of the numbers of it. And of course, I love numbers. You know, that is, you know me, you know, I love my spreadsheets, but there's people that those numbers reflect. And I agree that we really, you know, in this booming population, we want people to feel like they belong. And we want them to feel like they belong with us as coworkers, as colleagues, as friends, as people we network with. We want them to feel like they belong as customers. We want them, we just want that sense of belonging. And it, it really does enrich all of our lives as well as, you know, begrudgingly our bottom line, but it's the triple bottom line. You know, I think the, the era of the asshole CEO is not going to be as possible in the future. I certainly hope so. There's a lot of value that people can bring to the table, regardless of how they look, how they think, how they, there's just tons of value. And so I, I hope you're right. And that the, these asshole CEOs 
are working their way out and so that we can have these kinds of environments that are accepting and just incredible. There's so much value that we get personally that our companies get. So fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. I do believe in fairy tales. So, you know, we've got that. So, you know, we've talked about so many things and, you know, I want to make sure that we really, I want to call this out because I feel like, you know, things have been kind of leading up to this point when, when we talk about value systems and, and inclusivity and different ways of going about our marketing is what is a question someone should ask you? Oh, in general, in the workplace, it's what, what does good look like? I don't think this question gets used nearly enough. This one, I, I can't take credit for. This came, comes from Kim Scott and Radical Candor, which I know she, she'd love to rename that book because of all those asshole CEOs that, that take advantage of that. But what does good look like? What does good look like out of ourselves? What does good look like out of our companies? When someone wants to deliver something and we've been vague, having them ask me, you know, what does good look like? If I say, hey, go, go produce a thing and I've been vague about it, you know, what does good look like to you? Because oftentimes we have no idea what's in the brains of the person that we're asking or that we're working with. And so what does that look like is, is this incredible question that if I'm asked, I can say, well, it's this with these kinds of analytics and, and this stuff. And, and now you as the person asking me the question absolutely now understands what I meant when I said, go build me an email blast, go build me a campaign, go, go make this or, or whatever happen. And it just helps everyone visualize and get on the same page. So that's, that's my absolute favorite question. I agree. I love it. I think that you know, when we ask ourselves that before we make requests of other people, we, <laughs> we make the world a better place because then you, you tell them what you're actually asking them for. Funny story that I'm sure all of our graphic designer friends out there can relate to is when a customer's like, mm, but not like that. Can you make it pop? Like what, what really happened was they didn't tell you what they thought good would look like. So it's the, it's, it's just so powerful knowing and being intentional about and asking ourselves about it. What does good look like? What does good in our lives look like? What does good, you know, what's a, what's our social life? What's our, what companies do we want to work for? What does good look like? And um, that can help us get back to our values too. And what is, what is the thing that, that makes us feel good? What makes us lead enriched lives and, and lives of joy, even it probably sounds hokey, but if we, if we know what that looks like for ourselves, I think we just live better lives too. Yeah, I think it makes us better coworkers, colleagues, friends, coworkers, managers, CEOs, all of that. You know, it's that going upstream that you might hear about is that if you come across someone that is having bad behavior and you go upstream to like what caused it and you think about, well, are they angry? Are they but but in more than that, that's a very like shallow description of going upstream. But it, it helps to trigger the thought process of, of what does good look like and, and how did we get here? So when we can have the things that make us fulfilled, we are more likely to impact those around us positively without being like a toxic, you know, toxic positivity is its own thing. Like we aren't trying to be like one of those meme inspirational posters here. We're just trying to be good people. And it's easier to be a good person when you feel good. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us and entertaining my philosophical fairy tale thoughts and feelings. I appreciate everyone listening to this episode of Marka G. If someone wants to get a hold of me, the best way to do it is to email info at markagy.com. If someone wants to get a hold of Chris, how should they do that? Uh, so LinkedIn's an easy way, or you can email me at chris at chrisblack.com. Note that it's spelled C-R-Y-S and black like the color, short for crystal but you can email me directly that way too. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Crystal. Chris, <laughs> it's because you said it before. one. Thank you for joining me. Thank you everyone for listening and keep in touch. Thank you so much. Bye. You've been listening to Markagy, the science of marketing strategy. If any of the strategies we talked about today inspired you to learn more, try them. Remember, the perfect strategy doesn't exist, only the one that gets done. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player to make sure that you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.